HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bonnie knows when you plant something, it keeps on giving. Growing from friend to neighbor to community. Generations of gardeners have trusted Bonnie for fresh, healthy vegetable and herb plants. Rely on Bonnie for quality plants, help, and support. Bonnie, gardening with you since 1918. BonniePlants.com You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. If you thought Irish cooking was dull and all about potatoes and cabbage, hold on to your hat. You'll hear all about it today on A Taste of the Past. Irish cooking has a long and storied history, which is probably not known to many people. I think they most people can't get past the potatoes and then the potato famine. But I have with me today the grand dame of Irish cooking and cuisine, <laughs> Darina Allen. Darina is the preeminent authority on Irish cuisine and the owner of the renowned cooking school Ballymaloo and a wonderful teacher. She is a popular TV cooking personality and the author of more than five books, winning many awards, including the prestigious Eurotalk Award for Outstanding Contribution to the Irish Culinary Sector. She has a new edition out of her popular book, Irish Traditional Cooking, which has a wonderful section on the history of Irish food. Darina, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I know that you're in town um, here in New York City from Ireland, from Ballymaloo, to um, to give an award, a poetry award, in conjunction with a literary fest and with the Moth magazine. Tell us a little bit about that award and about the, the literary fest. Well, the um, award is the um, Ballymaloo International Poetry Award, and this is our third year to give it. Actually, we're just announcing the uh, competition this time, and it's the first time we've come to New York to, to launch it. So, Because for the last two years, we've been doing this in conjunction with the Moth uh, Poetry Magazine here in Ireland, and 
we've had entries from all over the world. So we thought, well, we, we should take it global and launch it in New York as well as obviously at Ballymaloo in Ireland. Now, does the, the poetry contest have anything to do with food? Well, not necessarily. The poems can be, it has to be a new poem, obviously, and uh, uh, it must be uh, an original, uh, original, obviously. And But if it's about food, well, that's very nice too. <laughs> another uh, dimension. It's another dimension, but it's not essential. Okay. Um, however, the, the literary fest that you've sponsored, that is, yes. that is well, really quite That was a literary festival. We did a, a literary festival of food and wine that we did at Ballymillu over the Maybank holiday weekend. It was absolutely extraordinary. Uh, we decided to do a literary festival in between Ballymillu House and the grain store at Ballymillu, which is a wonderful facility for concerts and all sorts of things, and also the Ballymillu Cookery School. And of course, when it was connected to Ballymillu, it had to be about wine and food. So it's amazing because there have been literary festivals all over the world and food festivals and wine uh, festivals and tasting but there didn't seem to have been the three together and a lot of the time um, the food festivals aren't necessarily about literature as well so there are so many uh, I mean so many thousands of cookbooks and books on wine and everything but but some of them are you know if you never picked up a wooden spoon you could sit up in bed reading the prose and be licking your lips and there are people like so we had speakers literally from all over the world we had Marta Jeffrey we had Claudia and the sort of grand dams of the right. thing uh, Stephanie Alexander Alice Waters was also coming in the end actually because of the fire chip and she couldn't come but we had David Thompson and and on and on so we had this amazing lineup of speakers and and literally people came in from all over the world and it t- it just went into orbit and we were very fortunate that the the weather which is always a, a factor in Ireland was brilliant that weekend so we had hoped for about two and a half to three thousand people you know over eight thousand people turned up over the weekend we had a whole fringe element to it as well so you're not normally meant to have a fringe for a few years <laughs> but we had a fringe on the first uh, time because in a way the word literary can put many people off you know they think uh-huh. well maybe that's not for me but because we had a whole fringe with an amazing amazing sort of market and all kinds of other events many of them free and something for kids and lots of educational stuff you know everybody felt they could come so it was just extraordinary yeah. and we're going to do it again next year on may from may the 16th to the 18th in 2014 oh, that's wonderful yeah. well in looking over the the list of speakers i noticed that there are a handful of speakers who actually have all have been on our radio network on other shows not on my show necessarily but on some of the other shows yes. so i mean you really have touched a lot of different corners of gathering people who have knowledge in different respects yes and and the literature you speak about um uh books that you know about food it's amazing where you will find food and i know one of your speakers dorothy cashman we were talking about that earlier yes she was a former student of yours that's right school. school um but she and you mention also in your book often um about um the author i'm gonna get it wrong myra edge no hedge uh Maria Edgeworth. Maria yes. Edgeworth, right. Yes, Edgeworth, yes. But, and she writes so much about food, and you get a sense of food in the period. Well, look at, and even looking at well, you know the popular series here, uh, Downton Abbey, and how people, yes. how many people were involved with the food in that, and, you know, above all of everything else, because it's such an integral part of, of life. Well, of everything. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Well, you know, right back to the, you go back 9,000 years ago to when people, uh, you know, came to Ireland the first time and then they found, they were the hunter-gatherers. But actually, Dorothy Cushman, who you just mentioned a few moments ago, she has looked very interestingly at a period that in many of the books on Irish food history and so on had been kind of slightly airbrushed out. And that was the, the she found 
went back and found many of the manuscript cookbooks from the great houses and so on. There's a wonderful collection in the National Library in Dublin and also there's some of these manuscript cookbooks are still held in family, in houses around the country. I mean, the earliest one, I think, is at Burr Castle, the Parsons family. This has been added to since the late 1600s. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's an incredible history of uh, of the food in Ireland down through all of those uh, ages right up to the present day. So, and these were a lot, of course, handwritten. Very often they were handwritten by the the woman of the house because often the cook would be illiterate. And so, when you read the, I've had uh, spent quite a lot of time studying these as well. And uh, basically, uh, in Bar Castle, that particularly the Parsons one there, um, you know, some of the recipes have. Um, it's amazing the spices and everything actually that they have in them and they were very keen on rose water but I saw there was one recipe with a quarter pound of caraway seeds in it well that would kill you, that you was <laughs> so well, obviously the the, 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 the the lady of the house didn't actually cook and the uh, the cook of the house at that time may not have been literate and obviously would have cooked by touch and so on so there was a bit of guesswork going on and in some other recipes there was tons of rose water but fascinating what was a available in terms of the range of spices and of course all of those houses as well would have had kitchen gardens and game larders and uh, orchards and uh, there were many many uh, recipes for pickling and of course for medicines as well and that kind of thing for cures for all sorts of things and it's interesting because the manuscripts and and Barbara Wheaton has mentioned this you and I were talking about her early Barbara does a wonderful course um, up in Boston uh, about how to read cookbooks and how to read manuscripts but from these manuscripts we learn so much about culture of the time exactly but also because they were handwritten they were not like cookbooks are now going going to go onto a shelf in a shop mm-hmm. so in a, a way basically people they were more intimate in a way people had little notes in the in the margins about and obviously they shared recipes as well between different houses and you'd have one you know a sort of very good uh, a, a receipt or whatever and thing and then maybe something a derogatory comment about <laughs> something else which obviously they would have uh, trusted wouldn't have got back to the uh, the owner but and obviously the cooks sometimes would have come with the family when they were visiting abroad even as well which is interesting right. yeah well in so many cultures um these recipes for the food of of that land are passed down through oral tradition exactly and to have a manuscript to have it written and preserved is is just a wonderful uh, treasure and also you know when you think of the perception of irish food as being as you say kind of rooted in the potato and corned beef and cabbage and all of that the food the sophistication of the food that was eaten in these great houses was just extraordinary and not only the range of ingredients and spices as i said that they had but also they were you know obviously the families traveled they went on the grand tour in europe and so on they came back with obviously sort of at least descriptions of some of the food they'd eaten in in france and italy and austria and so on and gave it to the cook when they came back Mm -hmm. and then of course it was all very uh, a la mode to have you know french names on things and so on so it was it's really quite an eye-opener to see the 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 uh, the sophistication of the of the menus at that time so we're talking of many centuries there and the potato was a latecomer (laughs) being a new world food so there was food before the potato oh there absolutely (laughs) was and well it depends how far back you want to go i mean the hunter-gatherers would have you know come to a, a forested country basically and and lived on the roots and the leaves and the and the fish from the sea with our island nation of course lots of fish and shellfish around the the coasts and then gradually 
the the grains and cereals and so on were introduced and and so on the oats and and barley and and depended where you were in the social uh, strata as well whether you ate wheat bread made of wheat or bread made of barley or notes and right the, exactly the, the yes. dense gruel <laughs> that, that's right yes yeah. exactly well for such a small country that it is it is so rich in its natural oh, resources exactly and we are still so fortunate really even though the economy has taken quite a battering over the last number of years we have uh, in ireland we have a very high percentage of fertile soil we have a, a, we have an, a country that can grow an enormous amount of food i think we produce 10 times the amount of food that we need to uh, to feed our population so we export a lot of food mm. we have a long growing season we have of course a marvelous coastline with uh, uh, fish and shellfish around it so and uh, established markets very close to Europe so we're very favoured in terms of, of producing food and then we can grow grass like nowhere else in the world That's true. Uh, so we can you know our dairy products and our beef and our lamb and everything are still fantastic and we still have lo- wonderful games so we are uh, favoured as Ireland always was really and and people came to Ireland and then we had in earlier times of course there was um, th- th- we were famous for what they used to call our bone beer, which are their white meats, which actually were our dairy products. And there was uh, many, many, many different references in early manuscripts to the different, all the different kinds of uh, of milk products and cheeses and butter. Uh, yeah, butter. Uh, oh, uh, butter. I mean, we had the biggest Ireland, butter market yeah. in the world. Right. Yes, was out of Cork, and there's a butter museum still in Cork. Hmm. So from small little farms all around Munster, uh, they would bring, they'd make their butter on the farm. And of course, the, the cows feeding on wonderful, rich pastures with lots of wildflowers and everything in them, and they, they made marvelous butter. And they would bring that in on, you know, uh, donkey and carts and on on horse and carts in as far as Cork to the butter market. And it, there they graded it very strictly, and then it was exported all over the world to the Caribbean, to India, and so mm-hmm. on. And you can that the butter was, was so stable and kept. And there's a beautiful story, actually. This is a more modern story, but uh, in my mother-in-law, Myrtle Allen's cookbook the Ballymaloo cookbook where um, my there was uh, this woman Mary used to come and a, a local lady would deliver butter sort of once a week uh, to the house and my father no met her one week and he said you know Mary that was wonderful butter you brought last week and she said, oh, yes, Mr. Allen, that field always made good butter. Oh, I mean, how yeah, beautiful yeah. is that? The people were so connected to the land and just noticed that when that field was, the grass was long and lush, that the butter was particularly good. So we've always, again, it's like I say, we can still grow grass like nowhere else in the world. And and, uh, <laughs> and it pays so, off. And it pays off. So, <laughs> yes. and of course, over here, you can get Irish butter. You can get yes, carry gold butter mm-hmm. and... and uh, uh, and I was actually talking to a pastry chef yesterday uh, and over here, and she was saying she always uses Irish butter because she gets the best results for baking. So it's very nice. Interesting. That, that, that tradition still lives on. Yeah, yeah. the cheeses yes. and the cheeses. The cheeses are yes. wonderful. Yeah. That's right. And Excellent. you get actually quite a lot of our farmhouse cheeses over over here now. Uh, and the one of the most interesting thing that's happened in Irish um, recent current uh, food history is, of course, the the um, emergence of an artisan food sector and people, you know, making cheeses in small quantities on farm from their own milk or from their che- their uh, could be cow's milk, it could be sheep's milk, goat's milk, and so on. So that's uh, you can get a taste of that place as you go around the country. You can get a taste of of that particular parish or that particular region from the food that's made on the farms there. Yeah. Well. We're going to talk a little bit more about some of this artisanal movement and how everything old is new again uh, when we come back after a short break. 
Bonnie knows when you plant something, it keeps on giving. Growing from friend to neighbor to community. Generations of gardeners have trusted Bonnie for fresh, healthy vegetable and herb plants. Rely on Bonnie for quality plants, help, and support. Bonnie, gardening with you since 1918. BonniePlants.com are back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm speaking with Darina Allen, the Irish chef, Irish cookbook author, and owner of the Ballymaloo Cooking School with her husband. Now, you started the school in 1983, correct? Yes. It'll be, can you believe it's going to be 30 years this coming September? 30 years. Yeah. So that, years is, if whiz passed, and we get students literally from all over the world, uh, coming I know I always particularly welcome American students actually because I know and I say to them well look for actually managing to turn up here after you've had such a ribbing over the last number of months about you know what are you doing going to a cooking school in Ireland you know how many ways to cook a potato so uh, but literally students have been coming from all over the world for a long time now I think it's because in a way the cooking school is in Ballymillow Cooking School is in the middle of a hundred acre organic farm so I think there's a real craving to reconnect back with how food is produced and right. where we it comes were t- from. And we mm. were talking about that right before the break, about how yes. there is this artisanal movement there, as well as, as in many countries, yes. small batch cheeses, even beers. and, and Yeah, craft beers, absolutely. Mm-hmm. All kinds of, of small, you know, like hands-on projects people are appreciating where the food comes from right and absolutely ha- yeah, and i think often when i ask students why they've come to, uh, to and they say it's because the school is in the middle of of a farm and they can we have um our own um we have our own chickens for example when they're cooking in the morning the scraps from the, uh, the leftover from the food uh, go into a hen's bucket and they get fed to the hens and come back as eggs a few days later so you know for students to sort of be able to reconnect with how food is produced and then we have an acre of greenhouses and quite a lot of gardens we grow you know we grow about 80 different things on our farm so Mm. they can see fruit and orchards and vegetables and we have an acre as I said we have an acre of greenhouses so we can uh, see and also the students then um, they can actually the people on the on the longer course on three month courses uh, who are training really to be chefs actually they it's like total immersion they can also the first thing we do on the first day is we show them how to sow a seed <laughs> and then the first recipe they get is how to make compost and they say oh my god you know, didn't say anything about this in the in the brochure but it's really to get shock people out of thinking that food is just something that comes wrapped in plastic off a supermarket shelf uh, it, to get to think about how the food is produced the breed the feed the variety etc so this really thrills people actually they just love to reconnect again and then we have some pigs and we have uh, we also have cows so we we uh, milk five uh, five jersey cows every morning so it's almost self-sufficient I mean the whole school you know something we often uh, particularly from now on we often sit down to a plate of food where everything on the plate including the butter and the cream and and milk and everything came from the farm and garden so that's a real wonderful blessing and so on and then of course we do uh, 
that we do three of those three months to few courses in the year but we also do short courses days weekends weeks and people if they're in Ireland they can just come in for an afternoon or something well I did notice yeah. you have a wonderful uh, series of courses which interests me and that's the forgotten skills courses yes. tell me about that one well now those are again it's back to this craving to reconnect isn't it so we've been doing these for about maybe 10 or 12 years now these are uh, uh, things like how to uh, cure a pig in a day a butchery courses and those sort of things how to make sausage and salamis and chorizos how to make butter cheese and yogurt how to beginners buy to beekeeping how to keep chickens in your garden have foraging courses it's called a walk on the wild side with Darina Allen how <laughs> corny is that but anyway but we've been doing those for about 15 years and actually there's really a growing really fast growing interest in all those kind of courses again and I think it's partly to do with the recession all over the world where people suddenly have become to that we've had to reevaluate our our think about our values and suddenly we realize that uh, or I think appreciate the value of a degree of self-sufficiency because well, a lot of people were able to do nothing they can yeah. only make toast you know but don't you think also it's it's an awareness of what we put in our bodies and, and the eating. I think people are really concerned, you know, especially with all the talk about the, you know, genetically modified foods yes. and, and, and commercial fertilizers and yes. things, that I think people are more aware of what they're eating, how it's grown. Yes. You know, I mean... And what? they want to take back control to yes. a certain extent. Even if you're living in a high-rise apartment somewhere, if you have a window and you have something to grow something in and light and water, you can grow something. You don't even have to have a greenhouse. And then, my God, when you grow, when you sow a seed and wait for it to grow Little into baby. something you can eat, you will, you just want everybody to know that you grew it and you want to eat it slowly and you want everybody to tell you how wonderful you are. And it does, it's not about just about economics. It's about a whole a quality of life yeah, it's an about an appreciation it, yeah. and also it's about something you can trust and you're quite right we no longer can say we don't know what's going on behind the scenes uh, in in terms of food production and uh, in um, you know particularly when food is very intensively produced and there is an incredible relentless pressure to bring down the price of food and there's no such thing as cheap food the cheap food is a myth uh, basically uh, you know it costs too much in health terms in socioeconomic terms and everything. You see, I was brought up, um, I'm now 64 years of age, and of course I was brought up, uh, the eldest of nine, to always believe that our food should be our medicine. And my mother felt very strongly that if you didn't put the effort into um, the food on the table, it didn't have to be expensive, but it had to be fresh and nourishing and good and wholesome and home-cooked and so on. Then you give the money to the doctor or the chemist, (laughs) and uh, we don't want to do them out of business. But basically, uh, so that so we've got to, in a, in a way, we have in Ireland even, and to a great extent over here as well, we have failed several generations now by letting them out of our houses without giving them the basic life skills to actually feed themselves properly. Right. And it's all right in New York because, you know, you can go to a, any restaurant or whatever and you can, but, you know, we need to be able to cook mm. and we need to sit down around the table again and well, chat I to each other. I see that this is the philosophy pretty much that the school was based upon, really, yes. right? And that's well, that, well, that's definitely true. And, and uh, uh, th- these sort of values are not just something to... I mean, the skills that we teach at the school, of course, one can earn one's living from, and they go. our students go out and become chefs and go straight into restaurants, or they write about food, or they do television or whatever. But basically, it's these are skills for life. Yes. These are skills that touch your... 
everyday life and will enhance the quality of your life to be able to cook and and uh, just also I find as well now that uh, students a number of years ago there was students certainly didn't want to learn how to pluck a you know a pheasant or to skin a rabbit or something like that and it may not be something that would you know touch everybody's life but it's become so cool again even for the girls and so on to be able to do these things and the, and the butchery classes are yeah. totally sold well, out even over here it's the same isn't it yes and 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 you touched on i think one of the main reasons and it's, it's the appreciation you should know where your food comes from exactly and and you yes. do that job yes you may not ever pluck a chicken again but yes you have an appreciation yes for what this is that's on the plate, plate. on the table. Exactly. It makes a big difference. Uh, it, it does make a big difference and it's something we really need uh, you know, we really need to know about. We need to know how chickens are reared. We need to know about, you know, uh, how the animals are treated and so on. We can no longer say that we, uh, in conscience, I mean, I'm absolutely not a vegetarian, but I am not prepared to eat meat where animals or birds or whatever have suffered from right. what's on my plate. And and I'm also, I'm not interested in having something that's loaded with antibiotics and hormones and growth promoters and bone strengtheners and antidepressants. Well, you've written... Um uh, about your childhood and growing up in yes. the past, and I know there was a wonderful story about your summers spent on a, on a family Far- farm, on a family farm. That's right. Um, and you and I have been growing up through the same era. Um, yes, <laughs> that we, um, you know, we we went through this this beginning of where all the food was yes. grown. You bought it from the farmer's market. Yes. And, and then all of a sudden came the modern era, the 50s. Yes, Talk a little right. bit about that. Well, I mean, I was really so lucky to catch the end of that era because when I was a child, uh, our summer holidays were not spent like the youngsters are nowadays in Lanzarote or somewhere. You know, we were sent off to our relatives in Tipperary to get a bit of bog air or something. And, uh, of course, lived with them then for several weeks. At a time, and my on one Aunt Lil and Uncle Bob's farm, um, you know, I, we, they would be saving turf in the summer, and then we would they made they had a big dairy herd, of course, or not a particularly big dairy herd, but they um, they made butter every couple of days. So I just this was all what was going on every day. They killed a pig at the end, uh, or a couple of pigs at the end of the uh, in the in the autumn, and then the neighbours came in and helped to cut it up, and then you'd share the meat with them, and then I saw them salting down the bacon for the winter and so on. So I learned all these sort of skills it was just at that time of course the skills were passed from one generation to another you just that's how you learned how to cook how to make bread how to cook over the open fire all that sort of thing and gosh doesn't everything come full circle yeah. now it's all about <laughs> exactly. cooking over wood and everything again uh, and uh, so I was really lucky to catch the end of that actually and then of course I remember the excitement in the country village where I lived in in Cullahill and County Leash uh, with the first instant whip coming to the village and blamange and you know at that time it was of course a treat I mean how ridiculous is this but to have a packet of fig rolls or spring sprung biscuits or those you know those coconut creams and and so that's what we all wanted we wanted I I remember when electricity came to our village I was about nine when electricity came to the village before that there were no in the rural towns I mean (laughs) yes but you know it was only a few years earlier that uh Uh, that electricity came to most of the country. So a a lot of people my age, well, are a little older, certainly would remember life before electricity. Mm. And when you think about the paranoia now around food safety and food hygiene and every goddamn thing wrapped up in plastic and so on, you know, it's just it's good to remind ourselves that uh, that refrigeration is only over 100 years old, even in America. So, you know, in a way, we want to be really careful of this because the more sterile everything is, sometimes 
the more you know depressed our antibodies our you know, resistance is and so right. on so but that's a whole other topic that's altogether right. germs are our best friend according well, to michael pollan so this is good well <laughs> yes, germs, but you know in germs. a way it's even funny with a lot of my students when i say to them what is ba- what's bacteria is it good or bad and a lot of people think the word bacteria means bad and mm-hmm. It's so very high. Over eighty percent of bacteria are beneficial to us. And Come so back on. to so cheese. Right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, well, that's a whole other subject altogether. Right. We're straying off the mark. Yeah. Well, actually, not really. But what I would like to do is. Um, Throw out a few terms for our listeners because you throw them about in your book a lot. <laughs> right, okay. I, I think I need to take another language course in order to read some oh, of the, the recipes. There now. we are. But um, for those who aren't really familiar with some of the terms, but one is, a, is an historic uh, term for a cooking pot, often known as a brazier or bastable. A, a bastable. Yes. A bastable is, uh, well, was, I mean, of course, even, you know, honestly, when I was. In the um, late 50s, uh, when I was a child, we were uh, in this country village again. We were one of the few people in the village who had a cooker. A lot of people would have cooked still over the open fire at that time. Hmm. So the battery de cuisine was just a few different cooking pots. So you would have a kettle, you'd have a great big round black-bellied pot kind of thing. And then there was this pot oven sort of thing called a bastable. It was a, it was a pot. Uh, like with a the, cast iron Dutch oven. Uh, and, uh, no, not cast legs, iron. Was it was it? actually iron. It was iron. And it had three... Uh, interesting from India to whatever you come across something in very similar shape in many many countries but it had just three legs underneath it and it had a lid on it and a sort of slightly conical lid with a little lip and so people would have cooked um, the, over the open fire and this and they would have made bread in it and they would have cooked um, you know stews or uh, even apple tarts or even a goose occasionally in it when they were having it that would have been a big treat and then they would have taken embers hot embers from the fire and put it on the lid and then this would have been over the fire. Actually, often over the, the uh, there was a sort of three-corner kind of stand that it sat on sometimes. But sometimes it was just directly over the open fire. Incredibly skillful to cook in it because you had to really judge the heat of the fire and the embers on top. And then it cooked and it was sort of sli- slightly steamy inside. So the crust of the bread would be soft and the bread would be really light and fluffy, you know. But now, um, so that was called a bastable. I think the word came from... They were manufactured in Barnstable in the UK, as it was one of the places they were. They this iron came from. These iron pots came from. So I think that might have been uh, a bastardisation of the word Barnstable, Bastable. And uh, so, but, but then, but now we make Bastable bread. We make soda bread in a sort of cast iron, sort of like Le Creuset kind of saucepan in the oven, and you get a very similar result, but without the romanticism of cooking over the open fire. But of course that took incredible skill, that kind of cooking, because there was no, nowadays you turn on an oven and just turn on the thermostat, whereas it took much our mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers had much more skill in the way that they were able to judge the the heat of the Put your hand in front of the fire. Exactly. Count to three, right? That's right, exactly, yes. (laughs) Well, so many of the um, the foods are still popular today, or once again, you know, a, a renewed popularity. But they are, in fact, traditional foods. Yes. And, um, puddings, particularly. The black pudding, the black and white yes. puddings. Tell me about yes. black and white puddings. Well, again, you see, because the pig was always very important in Irish, um, the whole Irish life, and so many of the, uh, it, you know, it, the, uh, everybody, even in our village, when I was a child, you know, the, the postmistress, they would have had a couple of pigs. They would have reared a few pigs. Even in cities like Dublin, a lot of people 
would have keep, kept pigs and then killed them and of course they would cure them down for the winter but when you kill a pig you have you know you should really if possible use everything from the nose to the tail and they right. did so of course the blood was uh, every every culture has blood puddings because blood is incredibly nourishing so the blood was used the fresh blood was used to make black puddings and uh, every family had their own um, their own recipe for it and so on and then the white puddings were made from other bits of pork and the lights and the liver and some you know breadcrumbs that kind of thing as well so the, there's both brown at least both black and white puddings are still made in Ireland uh, the best ones are made from fresh blood because then they're crumbly and delicious and really really good nowadays sometimes they use they use frozen or dried blood for it but that's nothing like so good uh, but that's very much part of our tradition, and still, when you have an Irish breakfast, Irish breakfast in Ireland with you know what we what you call bacon, we call rashers, sausages, black and white pudding, maybe some mushrooms, maybe a bit of fried bread or, or a potato cake. In the north of Ireland, you would have uh, what they call fadge, which is a potato bread mm. uh, that would be part of it as well. That would set you up for the day. I can tell you I a guess. plate of that. <laughs> yes, and the white pudding was was made from the, the, the offal, or the, 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 well, no, the white pudding was made from you know the, the little sort of scrap of meat and the lights uh, which are the lungs and the liver and so those extra little bits that was the white pudding was made from that whereas the black pudding was blood and then sometimes there was some pinhead oatmeal in it and some spices and uh, and so on and seasoning salts of course yeah well, and then it was put in back into back into the uh, the intestines. I mean, I remember as a child again on this farm in Tipperary, uh, helping to wash out the intestines and turn them inside out. My little fingers were quite small, so I could mm-hmm. turn them inside out and scrape off the fat off the inside. And that was actually added to the mixture for the black pudding. Sometimes had little little uh, small dice of the back fat, which is different. The fats in the pig, you see, they're all render at different uh, uh, temperatures and so on. They have different textures, so yeah, we use them for different things. And so that's why the puddings are always round. You see them exactly. uh, sliced up on yes, a plate, Yes, and in right? France they have the Boudin Noir, and yes, then in, yes. in Spain, you know, it's uh, Motilla and so on. They all, um, yeah. And, I mean, there are references in early Irish uh, manuscripts, again, to... Um, they, this was very early on now with the, when cattle were just introduced and the Kerry cattle would have been one of the earliest, we actually have Kerrys and Dexters on our farm now, they're one of the earliest breeds in Europe but they used to, um, in the winter they used to bleed the Kerry cattle and they'd put in something uh, t- they'd bleed, take it from a vein um, because they knew how nutritious the blood was and there was a saying that the Kerry cows know it's, knows it's Sunday because they didn't bleed them on a Sunday oh. Yeah, incredible. But yeah. it's just, you know, every ancient culture, as I said, understood the nourishment that came from blood. Mm. As I mentioned earlier, such a small country, but such a, a, a treasure of natural resources. And, of course, from the sea, the fish, I mean, are yes. just are, are phenomenal. Yes, and cold so water is wonderful, you know, wonderful textured fish. And, of course, a huge variety of fish. Cold and, and clean. Cold and clean. Cold water. and right. clean, yeah. yes, in the south and west and the west coast of Ireland. Yes, still very clean waters were very fortunate yeah but herring and herring and mackerel were are very were very popular they were still are, and, I'm sure, and abundant of course because so, they could be put up and uh, stored right exactly and they would have been salted down and pickled and exported there were huge export markets of of uh, of herrings and mackerel and and so on and then they ate uh, early on particularly they ate uh, a lot of shellfish as well. They particularly loved limpets, which are kind of quite chewy, actually. But in a way, people were eating when people were collecting food. 
years ago we forget that they weren't being as fussy about things as we are nowadays it was absolutely about sustenance and nourishment and feeding people i always thought limpets were the barnacles you know just, they are they are barnacles, well, they are growing barnacles. On the sides of they the totally rocks. are in fact yeah. the irish the gaelic word for it is barnock and they made a they used to collect them uh, up to relatively recently traditionally they collect them on holy thursday to eat them on good friday uh, uh, and uh, the women i remember when i was doing research for that t- traditional food book um you know going down with the women uh, in Kerry and they, with their aprons they collected them in their aprons you mm. know and uh, of course they're attached to the rock they're like little Vietnamese hats little pointed Vietnamese hats and they that term sticks like a limpet is you know apt because if they hear you coming uh, they literally cling onto the rocks and it's very hard to get rid of get them off so you uh, we brought down a chisel with us or if you uh, come quietly you can take a sharp stone and just give it a, a, a quick uh, little t- knock with the stone you can knock it off but it's quite difficult to get them off the rocks and then you need to cook them and they can be uh, they can be quite tough and chewy uh, but they're very tasty oh, I'm sure yeah and yeah. but actually in a way I think now the the more modern way that a lot of chefs use razor clams and things like that is to cut them into very thin slices and toss them with pasta or something yeah, just and the, the, this was not known to our ancestors <laughs> Well, mm-hmm. um, there are so many wonderful stories um, in this book and in your and in your classes and in the school. And I just and Carrigine. Yes, oh, we didn't talk about the Carrigine. Yes, yes, you threw me on that one Sorry. one time. Yes, when we were at the Food Network, I was trying to cook a cook a dish for you. You were coming, and we were going to <laughs> to help display some of the food that you had wanted to present on air. Yeah, and you and you called for. Um, a, a agar agar in agar, a sheet uh, form, yes, gelatin, yes. and carrageen. And we think, yes. where in the world? Got to get tell, us, tell us about carrageen. Well, carrageen is an Irish seaweed. It's an, well, I think over here you can buy it as Irish moss, actually. And we collected off the little rocks. Actually, carrageen means little rock in Gaelic. And so uh, after the spring tides every year, when the, the tides are the furthest out, then you can, we pick, or of course you can buy it in shops if you want to, at health food shops and everything. Uh, we just pick this little seaweed off the rocks and then traditionally it would be brought up and spread out on the sort of spongy grass on the cliffs and then uh, washed by the rain and bleached by the sun for a few days. And then you can keep it forever. And it's an incredible, of course it's a natural gelatine, mm. uh, as many seaweeds are, and very nutritious and lots of iodine and other trace elements. And it helps to your metabolism to work to its most efficient so it breaks down fats and doesn't put on weight so jockeys and uh, and so on really love it as well but we serve it in Ballymaloo House um, which is the country house hotel that is attached where attached the school is attached to as well uh, we serve that at least once or twice a week and people in a, like, like as a pudding love it. Or as, a as a pudding we mm-hmm. make a pudding with it it's called carrageen moss pudding and then serve it well with often with a compote of fruit for example at the moment it would be poached rhubarb, rhubarb or poached yes. gooseberries <laughs> with elderflower because they're that season is just about to start now and it's absolutely wonderful and all our babies are weaned onto it as well it's a it's a one. It's a wonderful. So sea, seaweed plays a, a big role in a lot of other types of seaweed as well. Huh? Yes. Well, actually, it's interesting you should say that because Ireland is just waking up to the potential of the seaweed around our coast. So several people now are beginning to harvest the seaweed in, in, in a commercial way. And so now our challenge is to make sure that it's harvested sustainably. And, of course, we right. export quite a bit of seaweed now. But uh, you have to, when you're harvesting seaweed, um, and, you know, one needs to make sure to just leave the whole fast still on the rock so that you don't damage the initial plant and so right. on. So, yeah. 
like picking wildflowers. Yes, yeah, so Never this is all route, right? part of the foraging thing that we yeah. do as well. So we do a lot of foraging courses. And foraging, because well. you and you do you talk a lot, and of course nettles. There's a there's a yes. huge popularity here in this country too with serving stinging nettles. And, yes, um, and people I are saw them down at the Union Square Market yeah. this morning. I was down there about seven thirty, and there were nettles and uh, you know lamb's quarters. It's great to see so many of those wild and foraged foods in the markets now. At this Things point. that you're, you know I'm, I'm often tempted to to pull from my garden and throw away. I know I yes. know that it's something good to eat, but it's yes. some often crowds out everything else that's growing. <laughs> yes, well, it does. Well, then you can eat it. You can that's have right. your revenge that's and right. chickweed and all of those things. I mean, it's just interesting that we at the cooking school, we've been doing foraging courses, I suppose, for maybe nearly 20 years now. And in that time, every year I do a course, I learn about more. You know, I think that um, in a very high percentage of the food that's of the plants that are around us are actually edible, but of course one has to really be sure first. Mm-hmm. But every time I do a course, I learn from the people who are with me about more and more things you can eat, which is fantastic. So you need never be hungry. <laughs> it is, and I see pictures of you in a greenhouse and out in a field, surrounded surrounded by rows of kale. Yes. The the cut and come again kale. Right? Yes. It, does, it comes well, up again. Uh, well, it's great that kale has had its moment. It, of, Forever. Yeah. My God, we grow about four or five different types of kale. And uh, I think if I was only allowed one of the winter brassicas, it would have to be kale. You just kind of know it's doing you good, don't you? It's yeah. just amazing, yeah. really. Uh, and of course, that used to be cattle food at right. one stage. Yeah. So yeah. it's uh, tough, hard to chew exactly. until people knew what, until people what, what to do, do with it. it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, so this, again, was p- part of the food of our ancestors. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing it because uh, I'm, there's so much to learn from our ancestors and and all these um and and i think botanists who you know who are identifying these plants which they know from from their studies are edible but people have been ignoring them or treating them as weeds absolutely it's wonderful the way what you know seems to be new and very avant-garde now if we look back we can see that our ancestors and pre-ancestors really knew exactly what to do because they had to they really had to be in touch with nature because otherwise they wouldn't have survived and so there's very little new under the sun that's true what a great note to close on thank you so much a taste of the past from ireland thank you so much Dorina allen and thank i've you. been your host linda palaccio oh thank you so much linda that was great I hope I wasn't... thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>